As you find your seats, if you'd turn to Genesis chapter 33, and we're entering a time here in the book of Genesis, where we'll be tackling roughly a chapter each time we get together on Sunday nights. Any of you ever have a mountaintop experience followed by a trip into the valley the next day? Any of you ever struggle occasionally with that new life that you have in Christ and then find out that not only is the old man dead, but you haven't quite kicked him out like you'd like to? Anybody have that going on? This chapter's for you. This chapter's really for us. It's for all of us, of course, but we, we find this very human picture of this man, Jacob, who's just received this change in nature and character from the Lord. He's wrestled with God. He's gone from Jacob, the deceiver, the heel catcher, to Israel, governed by God, the one who struggles with or is the prince of the Lord, if you will, is another way to look at it. Very often that comes in the face of adversity. You go through these changes in your life where the Lord has worked and moved. He's done a great work and it's real, it's genuine, but then you go to put it to the test and you kind of chicken out. You reach that place where it's a little easier to fall back on your flesh, on the old ways, the old things, and Jacob is maybe the classic example of that in all of scripture. And we'll look at another one tonight in the life of Saul. I think this actual experience that's here, if we're honest, most Christians have experienced You've gone up, maybe you've gone to a camp or a retreat, you know, ladies retreats coming up fairly quickly and, you know, I know for you ladies, you get away and the Lord does something special, speaks into your life in some amazing way and you're just, you're coming away from that retreat and you're on fire and you get back to the home and the devil is still there and that's not your husband. That's just the way the enemy works. You go up on the mountaintop, you hear from the Lord, God works in a wonderful way, and the enemy is going to try and steal that away from you as quick as he possibly can. Because he knows if you begin to live that victorious life, then you're going to be a great weapon for the king and for the kingdom. And so you can almost anticipate what's coming next here in chapter 33 as... Interestingly enough, Jacob is still being called Jacob because he's going to go back to being Jacob and he's not going to act as he should as Israel. And so let's pray and we'll pick up here in verse 1 in Genesis chapter 33. Father, uh, we thank you for the restoration in our lives as you forgive us and work to, Lord, sanctify us and make us more like you that in those moments of fumbling around, in those moments of faltering and failing, uh, you're still there and you're ready, willing and able to pick us back up and get us out of the valley that sometimes we walk into and put us back on the mountaintop, Lord, where we can see you clearly. And so I pray if there's anyone tonight that's just simply struggling, Lord, that they would see hope in this passage that they'd recognize that you're a long-suffering God, a patient God, a kind God, 
One who's not only willing that none should perish eternally, but that none should live a perished life, who's saved? And so, Lord, you keep working with us and coming up under us when we fail and fall and propping us back up and bringing people into our lives to help us get moving forward again. And so, God, bless us as we study your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Genesis 33, and now... Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming. And so the picture is he's just had this incredible experience with the angel of the Lord. The Lord God himself really has spoken in a pre-incarnate way through a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Jesus has wrestled with him. And now here's this guy who should be very clearly aware of his own failures and his own faults, his own failings. Because he now has an actual visible limp from his struggle with the Lord. And so it should be pretty easy for him to realize he's not the the strongest man. He's not the wisest man. But God is at work in his life. And so he sees Esau coming. Now this has been a planned event in his life. He's desired to get this relationship squared away. And in this chapter... It's very possible to see the restoration of these two brothers and rejoice in that, as well we should. There's some good that comes from this meeting here in chapter 33. But because of what happens in the next chapter, it really is kind of secondary to what we see in Jacob's life in general, and that is he's kind of beginning to backslide a little bit. He's kind of going the wrong way. And so what could have been a case of real restoration ends up being a compromise really with someone he didn't need to compromise with. God had spoken into his life. God had given him strength. God had restored him. Even though God had crippled him in the sense that he walked with a limp, he had actually made him stronger. Because sometimes it's in that wounding that we become stronger. When we're broken, when we realize our own faults and weaknesses and allow God to use them for his glory, we actually can become stronger. In my own life, I've kind of watched how the Lord has, has done this very thing. You know, I'm kind of one of those guys that doesn't know what he can't do until he can't do it. And so I am prone to try pretty much anything and everything. If it's not immoral, if it's not against God's ways, if it is somehow possible to be done, I'm one of those people that likes to try new things. But I've also realized that as I've gotten older, the way that the Lord shows me that he doesn't want me to do some of those things is he allows me to walk away from those experiences barely able to walk. He lets me suffer the consequences sometimes of my own uh, lack of, of understanding that I'm as old as I am. And the same is true spiritually for us. Very often we don't see exactly where we are spiritually. And so the Lord lets us go headlong into a situation where we should be resting and trusting in his strength. And we're actually resting and trusting in our own strength still. We're still relying on our own abilities. And so there Esau was coming. And with him were 400 men. And so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and her children in the front, and Leah and her children behind, 
and Rachel and Joseph last. Now, does that sound kind of fishy to any of you? Now, I'll tell you, this is not a good way to raise your children. You say to maybe one or two of your kids, well, you guys are expendable. You go in the front and face the battle. Or in this case, his wives and his handmaids, well, you know, I really probably shouldn't have married you in the first place, so why don't you go get killed? He also is looking at this from another sense that he loves Rachel. That was his bride-to-be from the get-go. And their son, Joseph, is his favorite. And so what does he do? He doesn't trust them to the Lord with everyone else. He puts them in the rear where everyone else can get wiped out and they're going to be protected. You can see how he's kind of leaning back on his old ways. Sure, I trust the Lord, just not with my family. And he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck. And that's another way of saying he just grabbed him and they fell into an embrace. And they're hugging and kissing and they wept. He kissed him and they wept. And so it's a very genuine reunion. But it's an odd reunion that didn't have to happen this way. And you can see the compromise. Jacob, who is now Israel, should have gone standing up straight to his brother. Look, the power of the Lord is on me. But instead, he's bowing down. He lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? And so he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Notice that, underline your servant. Whose servant actually is Jacob, who is now Israel? He's actually God's servant. And he once again is turning that corner a little bit of compromise. A little bit of platitudes towards his carnal brother. And then the maidservants came near they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterwards, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. When you live as a person in this world, bowing down to this world, you're teaching your family to bow down to this world. You're showing them the way to get by in this world is to bow to the world's whim. In this case, Esau being a type of the world, representing not the Lord but carnality. And what Joseph or what Jacob does here, what Israel does here, but what Jacob specifically does is shows his family look, the way you get on in this world is you make compromises with the world. You cannot compromise with the world, it's not even possible. The world doesn't actually want compromise. The devil doesn't want compromise in your life. The devil wants to control your life. And those little compromises are a way that we allow the enemy to get in and get a foothold. And so when you begin to bow down to the world, eventually the world will keep you bowed down. The world will in fact hold you down. The enemy will press you down. But notice the whole family now is, is bowing before Esau. And then Esau says, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, 
these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Who really is Jacob's Lord? It's not Esau. It's the Lord God of Israel. It's the Lord of heaven and earth. It's the one that will be known by the name Yahweh Lord of hosts. Esau is not his Lord. But he's pretending that Esau is his Lord. Basically what he's saying is I I don't trust God. So I'm going to trust you instead. I'm going to placate you. I'm going to bow down to you. And again, it's so important to remember where this man has just come from. He's had this close encounter with the Lord, a mountaintop experience with the Lord himself. And not only did he survive, but he came out of it really thriving. He, he receives this new name. He, he, he is the beginning now of the, of the children, ultimately, of Israel. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But I want you to notice, God just let Jacob off the hook. Esau is actually saying, look, I don't need your stuff. But out of fear, fear can cause you to do things that you never thought you'd do. And when you fear the world and you do not fear the Lord, when you have those things backwards, when when your fear is misplaced, because the right kind of fear is the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of understanding wisdom. Amen? When you fear the Lord, then that fear takes the right place. It reverences God. But when you fear the world, you now begin to placate to the world. And so he says, you keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. Inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God. You're so much like God, I'm just going to bow down to you. Not only is that not true, it very obviously is for the purpose of gaining the wrong kind of relationship with his brother. A very compromised relationship where, as Jacob should be the leader, he's saying, look, I want to be a follower. When you tell the world that you want to be a follower, the world will accept that allegiance. Can I tell you that? The world will very quickly allow you to follow along and you'll pay the price. You'll begin to act like the world. You'll begin to work towards the world's goals and ends. And so he says, I've seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. He's basically being a schmoozer here. A worldly one at that. He's like, oh, you know. I just love you so much, Esau. I can't wait to be like you. You don't ever want to have heroes that are the most carnal people you know. Amen? Amen. That's what we know about Esau up to this point in time. He is a carnal person. And now Jacob is going, look, you're my hero. I've never met anybody. When I see you, I see God. 
Man, when your heroes in the Lord are carnal individuals, you got some issues. And you need to really rethink the, the, the way that you understand God's character in nature. In verse 11, it says, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me because I have enough. And so he urged him and he took it. And then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. And so there is a place in all of this that their relationship as brothers is being restored. And I don't think it's appropriate to overlook that aspect of it. But at what cost? At what cost? At the cost of the character of the man who's going to be the forebearer of the 12 tribes. Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant and I will lead on slowly at a pace at which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, now leave me with some of the people who are, now let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And there he called the name of that place Succoth. And so here in these first 18 verses of the 20 we'll look at tonight. You can kind of see Jacob's failures in pretty plain view. He's kind of going back to the old way. He seems to almost lose so much of what he just gained in his struggle. And this is one of those areas that I think we can learn from. You don't want to give ground to the enemy. You don't want to give back what God's already done in your life. But that takes boldness on our part. We actually have to rest and trust in the Lord. And the first thing is you can really see here is that that's not what Jacob was doing. He's scheming again instead of trusting the Lord. You can see that there in the first two verses. Jacob falters. He's failing himself. He's failing his family. He's failing his God. And yes, he is going to bounce back. And that's the glorious part of God's grace in the Old Testament. We see these very flawed individuals go up on mountaintops and have that incredible view, but they rarely stay there. They end up back down in a valley someplace. Uh, and we really find out kind of the elevation that, we, that we've gained and how we've actually lost it when we get down into those valleys again. One of the things that will strike you very quickly if you uh, transit the John Muir Trail on foot, if you hike from either end, the south end or the north end, and you uh, go through the heart of the high Sierras, you're constantly gaining elevation and then losing it. Most of the mountain passes are 50 feet wide on top at the very most. You spend all day going up one side. You get to the top, there's a great view, and you go down the other side. 
Very often our life is like that as we walk with the Lord. We climb these mountaintops, but we don't stay on the mountaintops. We end up into the next valley where the enemy is trying to convince us that we should stay there. And the Lord is basically saying, continue to climb. You're, you're going to go into a valley. When you go into that valley, get prepared for the climb back out. And that's not setting you up for failure. That's just saying the enemy works over time to try and thwart the plans of God. And so you're going to be on the mountaintop sometimes. But you're also going to be in the valley sometimes. And you have to have the intestinal fortitude in the spirit to say, I'm not staying down here in the valley. I'm going to climb back up the other side. I'm going to, the, going to go to the top of the next pass, if you will. How did Jacob fail? Well, like I said, in the first couple of verses, you can see he's scheming again. He's not acting as though he's governed by God. He puts his favorite wife in the rear and puts his least favorite family members in the front right in front of the army, basically. He says, look, you guys go in harm's way. If you get killed, at least I'll have Rachel and, and Joseph here. You, you can kill Billa and Zilpha and Leah and their kids. They're kind of expendable. Not a good way to be a husband. Not a good way to be a godly father. The second thing there in verses 3 through 7 is you can see that he's bowing instead of humbly limping. And why do I say that? Because there's a big difference between approaching the world with a limp because you've been beat up and bowing down and kowtowing to the things that the world wants to extract out of you. The world wants to take from you that which is your relationship with the Lord. And Jacob is basically saying, you don't even have to take it from me, I'm going to give it to you. He's not exercising that spiritual strength to just stand and say, look, no, I have a Lord and he's in heaven. And I'll face the consequences of my sin. I deceived you previously. I was working for Laban. And whatever price I need to pay, I'll pay. But I'm going to stand up straight. I'm not calling you Lord. I'm going to call my Lord, Lord. That's that spiritual boldness that he should have had. He should have humbly limped in a, in a practical sense rather than bowing down to Esau, who was not his Lord at all. This plays out in our lives very often as husbands. It, it's husbands that fail to lead their families. It's leaders who cave in to godless leadership principles and do things that are completely out of the character of a man of God, all, all to keep peace with people in the world. It's using unprincipled means to try and get people to attend church, those types of things. It's where you say, I'd rather be godless and popular and safe than godly and be in danger. He should have been acting according to God's command, just as he had promised he would back in chapter 27. He said, I will follow you. He was already guaranteed that the, that the younger brother should, should never bow. He should have, should have taken this encounter with God and said, look, I just wrestled with God. He saw, what are you? 
I just spent a night with, with the Lord. And yes, I'm limping, but God blessed me. You don't see Esau bowing, do you? You don't see the world in that sense bowing down to Jacob. What a tragedy it is when we who serve the Lord God most high bow down to the world. A third thing. Instead of taking this incredible encounter that he just had with the Lord and sharing it with his brother, he bows down to his brother. You talk about an open door. Any of you thought about that experience, if that happened to you? You're spending a night and and you actually get an audible voice, so much so that you can say that you have seen the Lord face to face. Don't you think you might want to share that with somebody the following day? Wouldn't that be something that would be very high on your to-do list? Wouldn't that be there in your Outlook calendar on your cell phones? Like, man, tell somebody about my encounter with the Lord. There's not one mention of what happened the night before. This incredible encounter where he says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. So he's not witnessing. He's taking this time of just begging for things from the world instead of sharing the truth with the world. This is one of those areas I think we can all grow in. There are areas of our lives where we have to interact with the world. You you, you go into a bank, you're not going to get to choose whether you get a Christian mortgage lender. You're going to be interacting with the world. You're not going to get to pick your utilities. So the guy that comes from Edison is not necessarily going to be a Christian. The person who delivers your packages from Amazon, not necessarily going to be a Christian. When you go into every restaurant, when you sit down and there's, you go into a restaurant that serves alcohol, not everybody in there is going to be a Christian. The question is, are you going to beg of the world or are you going to tell the world who you are in Christ? And as Christians, we ought to be so different that the world actually asks us what's different about us. I just saw you praying over your meal. Connie and I were in, you know, because Hoff's Hut's closing and I haven't written my really scathing letter yet to the owner of Hoff's. But, you know, we were in there and we were praying and we were actually praying for the people who've lost their jobs. There's a whole bunch of people. I, I didn't know this. But I'm sitting there listening and talking and, and with some of the, the wait staff that have been there. Many of them have been there for 25 years. And they just got told, bye-bye. We'll be back later, maybe. But you don't have a job next week. And so we were praying and a couple of the people came by and you know they heard us doing that. And they're like, thank you. It's not a hard thing. To give people a glimpse of Jesus. But if you're busy begging from the world, you're not going to be the kind of witness that you really need to be. A fourth thing that I see here is that Jacob's making promises, but he's not performing. He's not doing what God asked him to do. Just like his farewell, remember his farewell with Laban was kind of a scheme, right? He's doing the same thing with Esau. 
He, he's, he knows what he should do, but he's not doing it. And Esau now has kind of got this truce with his brother, but it's not actual true reconciliation because the whole thing is built on falsehood. You know, even our truces that we make with the world ultimately are going to be revealed for what they are. So Jacob is kind of back scheming and deceiving and not being quite honest with his brother. There's actually no record here that Jacob ever visited his brother at Mount Seir. And it's likely they're probably not going to meet until Isaac's funeral. And after that, they never saw each other again. Can you imagine the lost opportunity that Jacob has with Esau at this point in time? The last thing that Esau is going to remember about his Christian brother, of course, he was not a Christian as we know it, but as a believer, someone who represents someone who later would be in a right relationship with God, is that this guy who professes to have a relationship with God doesn't express any of that relationship in anything that he does with his family. And here's how that works with us. When you go to those family functions and you act exactly like your unsaved family, you are blowing an opportunity that you may never get again. You may never have an opportunity to talk to that brother or sister again, ever. You may not see them. Maybe their last day on the earth or maybe your last day on the earth. Maybe you're going to get separated and go opposite directions. Don't miss that opportunity. Don't make promises to be taken up later. Take the opportunities that God gives you and seize them for today. And I'm not saying every time you get together, you need to have a sermon prepared. Because I've met people like that. They show up at their brother's house or their sister's house or their parent's house. And they go, I've got a five-point message for you. Can you sit down? Let us pray. It usually doesn't work very well. But the way that you can share the love of the Lord with them is by Jesus being the center of everything. You, you can't carry on a conversation without talking about your time in the word, your time in prayer, your Lord, your church, your relationship with God, how you're serving him. Jesus should be interspersed in everything that you are and do. And when you get an opportunity to tell people about him, it should actually be easy because he's your everything. And you, you, you wonder sometimes why our families don't believe that our relationship with God is real is because when it gets real, we don't give them the real deal. We do exactly what Jacob does here. It's just like, well, you know, okay. Stand up. Even if it's with a limp. And you just say, you know what, I, I love God. You know, my brother Esau, I love you, and I'm sorry for what I did, but you're not my Lord. I have one of those, thank you very much. And his throne is in heaven. And a final thing that you see here is the danger of delaying when God speaks in your life. Verse 16, if you pick up with me. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth. 
and built him a house and made booths for his cattle. And therefore the name of the place is called Sakoth. And Jacob came to Shalem, which is a similar word to Shalom, peace. A city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So this is up in the middle of modern day Israel, north of Jerusalem. Before you would reach the far end of the Sea of Galilee. But it's in the land of the Canaanites. When he came from Padam Aram and he pitched his tent there, it's the place that Abraham went and built his altar. It's actually modern day Nablus. Between Mount Gerizim and, and as they met between these two mountains and we'll see this and they go back and forth, there's blessings and curses that are delivered from these two mountains. And he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent. And at the land of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of, of money, of silver. And there he erected an altar and he called it Eloi Israel. You, you see, God didn't tell Jacob to go to Shechem. To Shechem. He didn't tell him to go live in a booth. He told him to go live in the house of bread. The house of God. And so he tarries here in in Sukkoth, this land of booths near Shechem. That was a place of pilgrimage. That was supposed to be a stop along the way for Abraham. It was not supposed to be a dwelling place for the family. And God had told him to go, go live in the house of God. Go dwell with God. He did not tell him to, to do what he's doing now. And so you can see this partial obedience. And can I tell you that partial obedience is also partial disobedience. Whenever you do halfway what God tells you to do all the way, that is both partial obedience and partial disobedience. And so Jacob kind of aligns himself again with the world, saying, I don't want to be a fanatic here. So between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, kind of this beautiful little valley. Actually, it's fairly desolate today. But there's water there and places to graze. And it's safe. It would be a little more dangerous, actually, where he told him to go in Bethel which is down near the land of the Philistines in Gath. And so he chooses safety with the world instead of a little bit of battle with the Lord with him. This is exactly how we saw Lot get trapped, isn't it? Lot turned back and he looks at the world and desired the things of the world and saw what the world has to offer. And so Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. Jacob hasn't learned much. Another thing that you see here is that it's really obvious that Jacob's not in a hurry to do what God's asked him to do. 
Delay can be deadly. That's all I can tell you. Sit around playing kind of on the edge of what God wants you to do when God has spoken into your life is a dangerous thing. Because very often those windows of opportunity, those doors of opportunity don't stay open forever. And in fact, they may close. And in fact, they may actually be the start of you being shifted off of God's path for your life. And we certainly see that here in the life of Jacob. And so God's not looking for us to, you know, make our excuses and say, well, it's nicer here than where you were going to send me. If God speaks in your life, it really is incumbent upon us to, to move towards what God's asked us to do. I want to share with you kind of a similar story if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and I think we can make this fairly quick because it so parallels Jacob's life and it is a man who was chosen king, King Saul but in his disobedience he lost God's blessing Saul had all the makings of an amazing king He had every gift, he had every talent, he had every ability that a king would need. But he, like Jacob, decided he'd help God out and do things his own way. And so you might kind of say to yourself, what's the deal with Saul? There are several things that you can learn. Verse 1 here In 1 Samuel 15, and Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. And now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. So basically the the question is here, I've been sent to anoint you king, here's the test. Let's see if you're really ready. And thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he's done to Israel and how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Now here's what your flesh says. Well, that's horrible. that's not okay with me. I'm not going to do that. I don't care if God tells me to do this, I'm not going to do it. It's just, it's too harsh. Now, while as a person, a human being, that actually makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? It's like, man, this is just crazy. You want me to kill both men and women and babies and nursing children and ox and sheep and camels and you want me to just wipe everybody out? I mean, come on, there's got to be some kind of moderation here. But here's the problem. The Amalekites were going to become the mortal enemy of the children of Israel and God knew that. And so actually what God was doing was sparing the children of Israel through this war. As horrific as it looked, from the outside looking in, that someone representing God was given a directive to go wipe out a bunch of people and their livestock. It was for the purpose of sparing the children of Israel 2,000 years worth of trouble. 
and anguish and pain and sin and failure. Can I tell you that God sometimes gives us tough tasks? And you can either believe God, trust God, and do what God says, even if it's tough, or you can go the other direction, and you're going to find out that the Lord will loop you right back around to the same problem. And you're eventually going to be forced to see that God was right all along. And that's exactly what happened in the lives of the children of Israel. Had they followed God's directive, had Saul actually wiped that people out, they would have skipped losing countless thousands, tens of thousands of their own citizens. But instead they didn't. And so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telim. 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, and get down among the Amalekites, lest, I, lest you, I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel as they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is to the east of Egypt. So the lower Jordan River Valley. And he took also Agag, the king of Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul, circle it. And the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good. And they were unwilling to destroy them But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. In other words, Saul became his own God. He said, I'll be determining what's right and what's wrong here. I know you told me to do this, God. But you know, we're going to kill off the Amalekites. They're not going to need this stuff, so we'll just keep it. Bad idea. When you gain things from the world the world eventually gets a price from you. Verse 10, And now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. And he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And so when Samuel arose in the morning to meet Saul, he told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. So you see, behind the scenes, Saul was basically taking the place of God. Setting up his own little empire, his own little kingdom. And he has gone around and passed by and gone down to Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul's lying. He sets up a monument to himself and he says, oh, oh well, I, we're blessed of the Lord. I mean, all these sheep and stuff, look, look how the Lord's blessing us under my leadership. You can have all kinds of sheep and all kinds of oxen and not have the blessing of the Lord. 
self-deception again sets in in Saul's life. In verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they've brought them from the Amalekites for the people were spared and the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The rest we have utterly destroyed. Now, that isn't why he saved them, amen? That's a story. He saved them because they were worth a bunch of money. And then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord spoke to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. And so Samuel said, when you were little, in your own eyes, you were not head of the tribes of Israel. Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? And now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they're consumed. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on all the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on a mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed all the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder and the sheep, the oxen, the best things, which should have been utterly been destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Eh. Stone cold lie. Not only not true, it's exactly the opposite of truth. The people were not the ones that came up with this idea, this concoction, this abomination before the Lord. It was Saul himself. And furthermore, it was never to sacrifice them to the Lord. It was to make them rich. It was blame shifting one-on-one. These lousy people you gave me, God. You wouldn't take responsibility for it. And then finally, you can kind of see the penalty for not living up to who he is. And so Samuel said, verse 22, has the Lord, has the Lord as great delight in these burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. He says, look, I, I, I don't want you to go into rebellion. And he goes on and the rest of the story leads to the death of Saul. This man who's a great king who had tremendous potential, but he went halfway. He kind of did part of what God asked him to do. And then he partook of the things of the world. And finally, Agag, the king of Amalekites, comes out and does so cautiously. And Samuel hacks Agag to pieces in Gilgal. Samuel mourned for Saul and regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You talk about wasted potential. And so as we wrap this up tonight, it goes back to that principle of being doers of the word. Complete, total doers of what God tells us to do. Be doers, not hearers only. James chapter 1 and verse 22, because the, the opposite of that is you deceive yourself much of what we talked about this morning. Being self-deceived. Thinking we can kind of go halfway. 
And James goes on to say, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, it's kind of like a man that looks in the mirror at his natural face. For he sees exactly who he is, and I'm paraphrasing. He knows what he is and who he is, but immediately the moment he turns around and walks away from the mirror, forgets exactly what kind of person he is. She is. We are. You are. But the person who looks on the perfect law, those liberties that we have, and continues in it, does it. Not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. And it is that person that God blesses. You see, your Bible does very clearly teach that we receive blessings when we are obedient. Jacob was hearing, but he was not obeying. Jacob even understood, but he was not doing. Jacob even did some doing, but he did it half-heartedly and halfway. And there are a lot of Christians who live their lives that way. I've actually had people call me. They go, I, I'm in jail. My, my car's in a parking lot at so, so and so and such and such. And you take somebody over there to, to pick up their car because you don't want to leave it in the parking lot and plaster all over the car. There's a dove and a cross and a fish and five bumper stickers that say where they're going after they die. And they got arrested for a DUI. Imagine the witness that had before the Lord. Here comes that officer. Sir, can you step out of the car? Can I call my pastor? Just so you know, call me after you sober up. You can't do it halfway. You can't kind of, sort of be a believer when you want to. You either are or you are not. You can't make friends with the world. And in fact, scripture says he who makes himself a friend of this world is an enemy of God. You've got to be careful. This particular passage is, is the beginning of a very expensive detour. But in it we also see the path that we should take and can take. The path that we should want to take. Jacob doesn't live up to his new name yet, but he will. And that's the story of grace, amen? And we thank God for that. I don't know about anybody else in the room, but I thank God for do-overs. His grace is greater than all of my sin. But those detours can be very costly. And they can really put you on a path that is not God's optimum for you. That's not what the Lord has. So God's path to blessings is some very simple things that you see in this chapter. We need to do our part. We need to actually help God help us in that sense. We're not doing it for him, but we do need to put ourselves in a place to where he can bless us. 
A lot of Christians want God to bless them, but they don't want to do their part to be in a place where God will bless. So they try and stay friends with the world, and it doesn't work. They try and stay in those places that they shouldn't be, and it doesn't work. They try and keep characteristics in their life that are not of Christ, and it doesn't work. And they wonder why they're not being blessed. Well, it's because they haven't placed themselves in a place of blessing. So here's some things for you. If you're on the path to God's blessing, you're not going to need to scheme. You're not going to need to make up some crazy idea to help God out. You're also not going to have to deceive. You're going to be able to be truthful. Speak the absolute truth. Yes, speak that truth in love, but you'll be able to speak the truth. If you're on God's path to blessing, you will be able to speak the truth. You also will not have to try and buy affection. You're not going to have to bow to the world. You're not going to have to purchase allegiance by giving away part of your soul to the enemy. If you are on the path to blessing, you will not have to buy it. Because God's gift of grace is free, amen? If you're on God's path to blessing, you're going to be able to honor people the way God would honor them. You're not going to have to make anyone lesser or greater. You're going to be able to treat people equally with love and respect and care. Because that's what God does. If you're on the path to blessing. If you have to diminish people's character, if you have to cast off some because they're unworthy, then ask yourself the question, am I on God's path to blessing? And you certainly, if you're on the path to blessing, you're not going to have to bow to this world. Not to anyone. Just to the one true Lord, exactly as 1 Corinthians chapter 8 presents to us. One Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things exist and through whom I live, we live. If you're on the path to blessing, you're only going to have one Lord. You're only going to bow to the Lord God himself. You're going to bow to Jesus. Now in that, the path to blessing also allows for our faults and mistakes to be redeemed by the great redeemer. Amen? And we glory in that. We bless God for that. We shout hallelujah for that. Because the truth be told, most of us are recipients of that great grace for our failures, our weaknesses, our faults, our stumbles, our bruised toes. We ought to, we ought to have a club called Bruised Toes for Jesus. You know, because most of us have stubbed our toes at, at times in our walks. And the Lord is absolutely right there by his grace to pick us up, dust us off, and get us back on the path. But if we want to walk the path clearly, we have to see the things that God has for us. We won't have to scheme. We're not going to have to deceive. We're not going to try and buy affection. We will not have to make people lesser or greater. We'll bow only to the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths, these great truths found in the life of this great man, but this failed man, this flawed man, this man who falters and falls. And Lord, we don't want to repeat these mistakes, and so we thank you for showing us this this life that we can live in you, 
And so, Lord, we ask you to keep us from scheming. Lord, we ask you to never be deceptive, but always be truthful. Lord, we pray that you would help us in in our understanding of the value of all people, all of humankind, God. For you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, Lord, you value each person, each relationship. How we pray that you'd help us to do the same. And Lord, on this path as we wander it with you, how we pray that we would never bow to this world, never turn our knee to this world, never say yes to the things of the world, but always say yes to the things of the Spirit, those things which are pleasing to you. And in that place, Lord, like Jabez prayed, we, we ask you to bless us, bless us indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.